Chapter 65 Which reveals the identity of the Knight of the White Moon and recounts the release of Don Gaspar Gregorio, as well as other matters. Don Antonio Moreno followed the Knight of the White Moon, who was also followed, even pursued, by a good number of boys, until he entered an inn inside the city. Don Antonio went in as well, desiring to meet him. A squire came out to greet him and remove his armor. The knight withdrew to a room on the ground floor, and Don Antonio went after him, for he could barely wait to find out who he might be. The knight of the white moon, seeing that this gentleman would not leave him alone, said, I know very well, senor, why you have come. You want to know who I am. And since there is no reason not to tell you, while my servant removes my armor, I shall tell you the truth of the matter, omitting nothing. Know then, senor, that my name is Bachelor Sanson Carrasco. I am from the same village as Don Quixote of La Mancha, whose madness and foolishness move all of us who know him to pity. I have been one of those who pitied him most, and believing that his health depends on his remaining peacefully in his own village and in his own house, I devised a way to oblige him to do that. And so some three months ago I took to the road as a knight-errant, calling myself the Knight of the Mirrors, and intending to do combat with him and defeat him without doing him harm, and setting as a condition of our combat that the vanquished would have to obey the victor. What I planned to ask of him, because I already considered him defeated, was that he return to his village and not leave it again for a year, for in that time he could be cured. But fate ordained otherwise, because he defeated me and toppled me from my horse, and so my idea did not succeed. He continued on his way, and I returned home, defeated, chagrined, and bruised from my fall, which was a dangerous one. Yet not even this could diminish my desire to find him again and defeat him, as you have witnessed today. And since he is so punctilious in complying with the rules of knight-errantry, he undoubtedly will comply with the conditions I have set and keep his word. This, senor, is what has happened, and I have nothing more to tell you and I implore you not to reveal my identity or tell Don Quixote who I am, so that my good intentions can be put into effect, and a man can regain his reason, for his is fine when free of the absurdities of chivalry. Oh, senor, said Don Antonio, may God forgive you for the harm you have done to the entire world in wishing to restore the sanity of the most amusing madman in it. Don't you see, senor, that the benefit caused by the sanity of Don Quixote cannot be as great as the pleasure produced by his madness? But I imagine that all the good bachelor's efforts will not suffice to restore sanity to a man so hopelessly mad. And if it were not contrary to charity, I would say that Don Quixote should never be cured, because when he regains his health— we lose not only his amusing words and actions, but those of his squire, Sancho Panza, any one of which could cheer melancholy itself. Even so, I shall be silent and tell him nothing, if only to see if I am correct in supposing that Senor Carrasco's endeavors will have no effect. The bachelor responded that the matter was well under way, and he expected a successful outcome. When Don Antonio offered to do whatever he might require, Sanson Carrasco took his leave, had his armor tied on to a mule, mounted the same horse he had ridden into battle, 
left the city that same day and returned home without anything happening to him that needs to be recounted in this true history. Don Antonio told the Viceroy everything Carrasco had told him, which did not give the Viceroy much pleasure. Don Quixote's retirement meant that all who knew of his madness would lose the pleasure that might have been theirs. Don Quixote spent six days in bed, sick at heart, sad, melancholy, and morose, as he went over and over again in his imagination the misfortune of his defeat. Sancho consoled him, and among other things he said, Senor, your grace should lift up your head and be glad, if you can, and give thanks to heaven that even though you were toppled to the ground, you didn't break any ribs. And since you know there are always wins and losses, and you may have the hook but not the bacon, forget about the doctor because you don't need him to be cured of what's ailing you. And let's go back home and stop going around looking for adventures in places and countries we don't know. If you think about it, I am the one who's lost the most, though your grace has been hurt more. When I gave up the governorship, I also gave up any desire to be a governor again. But I didn't give up wanting to be a count, which will never happen if your grace gives up being a king by giving up the practice of your chivalry, which means all my hopes going up in smoke. Be quiet, Sancho, for my retirement and withdrawal do not need to last longer than a year, and then I shall return to my honorable practice. And there will be no lack of kingdoms for me to win and countships to give to you. May God hear you, said Sancho, and sin be deaf, for I've always heard that virtuous hope is better than wicked possession. Just then Don Antonio came in and said, with indications of great joy, Good news, Senor Don Quixote! Don Gaspar, Gregorio, and the renegade who went to rescue him are ashore. What do I mean ashore? They are already in the house of the Viceroy and will be here at any moment. Don Quixote was cheered somewhat and said, The truth is, I was about to say that I should be pleased if everything had turned out otherwise, because then I would be obliged to go to Barbary, where, by the strength of my arm, I would free not only Don Gaspar Gregorio, but all the Christian captives in Barbary. But what am I saying? Wretch that I am! Am I not the vanquished one? Am I not the defeated one? Am I not the one who cannot take up arms for a year? Then what am I promising? Why do I praise myself when it would be more appropriate for me to use a distaff and not a sword? Enough of that, senor, said Sancho. Long live the hen, even with the pip. Today it's your turn and tomorrow it's mine. These matters of clashes and blows shouldn't be taken too seriously because the man who falls today can pick himself up tomorrow unless he decides to stay in bed. I mean, if he lets himself lose heart and doesn't find new spirit for new fights. And your grace should get up now to receive Don Gaspar Gregorio because it seems to me that everybody's in an uproar and he must be in the house by now. And this was true because Don Gaspar Gregorio and the renegade had already given an account to the viceroy of the journey there and back, and since Don Gaspar Gregorio was longing to see Ana Felix, he came with the renegade to the house of Don Antonio. 
although he had been dressed in women's clothes when they took him out of Algiers, on the boat he had exchanged them for the clothes of a captive who had been rescued along with him. But no matter what he wore, he would have been sought after, served and esteemed, because he was extraordinarily handsome, and his age, apparently, was seventeen or eighteen years old. Ricote and his daughter came out to receive him, the father with tears in his eyes, and the daughter with modesty. They did not embrace each other, because where there is great love, generally there is not excessive boldness. The beauty of Don Gaspar Gregorio and Anna Felix, seen together, astounded everyone present. Silence spoke for the two lovers, and their eyes were the tongues that revealed their chaste and joyful thoughts. The renegade recounted the ingenious means he had used to rescue Don Gaspar Gregorio. Don Gaspar Gregorio recounted the dangers and difficulties he had undergone with the women in whose house he had been living, not at length, but in a few words, showing that he had intelligence far beyond his years. In the end, Ricotte paid and liberally compensated the renegade as well as the oarsman. The renegade was reconciled with and reintegrated into the church, a rotting limb who became cleansed and healthy again through penance and repentance. Two days later, the viceroy discussed with Don Antonio what means to employ so that Anna Felix and her father could stay in Spain, for it seemed to them there was no good reason that so Christian a daughter and apparently so well-intentioned a father should not remain. Don Antonio offered to go to court to negotiate the matter, for he had to go there in any event to tend to other affairs, letting it be known that by means of favors and gifts many difficult issues can be resolved. "'One must not place hope,' said Ricote, who was present at this conversation, "'in favors or gifts, because with the great Don Bernardino de Velasco, Count of Salazar, whom His Majesty made responsible for our expulsion,' Prayers are in vain, as are promises, gifts, and lamentations. For although it is true that he mixes mercy with justice, he sees that the entire body of our nation is contaminated and rotten, and he burns it with a cautery rather than soothing it with an ointment. And so, with prudence, sagacity, diligence, and the fear he imposes, he has borne on his strong shoulders the weight of this great plan and put it into effect." and our schemes, strategies, pleas, and deceptions have not been able to blind his eyes of Argus, which are always alert, so that none of our people can stay behind or be concealed, like a hidden root that in times to come will send out shoots and bear poisonous fruits in Spain, which is clean now and rid of the fears caused by our numbers. What a heroic decision by the great Philippe III, and what unparalleled wisdom to have entrusted its execution to Don Bernardino de Velasco. When I am there at court, I shall undertake all possible measures, one by one, and may heaven's will be done, said Don Antonio. Don Gaspar Gregorio will come with me and alleviate the sorrow his parents must feel on account of his absence. Anna Felix will stay with my wife in my house, or in a convent, and I know the viceroy would like the good Ricote to stay with him until we see the outcome of my negotiations. The viceroy consented to everything that was proposed, but Don Gaspar Gregorio, when he learned their plans, 
said that under no circumstances could he or would he leave Doña Ana Felix, but because he intended to see his parents, and then arranged to come back for her, he finally agreed. Ana Felix stayed with Don Antonio's wife, and Ricote stayed with the viceroy. The day of Don Antonio's departure arrived, and two days later that of Don Quixote and Sancho, for his fall did not allow him to set out any sooner. There were tears, sighs, swoons, and sobs when Don Gaspar Gregorio took his leave of Ana Felix. Ricote offered him a thousand escudos if he wanted them, but he would not take any, though he did borrow five escudos from Don Antonio, promising to repay them at court. With this they left, and, subsequently, Don Quixote and Sancho departed, as has been said. Don Quixote, unarmed and in travelling clothes, and Sancho, on foot, since the grey was carrying the armour. Chapter 66 Which recounts what will be seen by whoever reads it, or heard by whoever listens to it being read. As he left Barcelona, Don Quixote turned to look at the place where he had fallen, saying, Here was Troy. Here my misfortune, not my cowardice, did away with the glories I had achieved. Here fortune turned her changes and reverses against me. Here my deeds were obscured. Here, in short, my happiness fell, never to rise again. When Sancho heard this, he said, Senor, it is as fitting for valiant hearts to endure misfortune as it is for them to rejoice in prosperity. And I judge this on the basis of my own experience. For if I was happy when I was governor, now that I'm a squire on foot, I'm not sad because I've heard that the woman they call fortune is drunken and fickle and most of all blind. So she doesn't see what she's doing and doesn't know who she's throwing down or raising up. You sound very philosophical, Sancho, responded Don Quixote, and you speak very wisely. I do not know who taught that to you. What I can say is that there is no fortune in the world, and the things that happen in it, whether good or bad, do not happen by chance, but by the particular providence of heaven, which is why people say that each man is the architect of his own fortune. I have done that with mine, but without the necessary prudence, and so my assumptions have turned out badly, for I should have realized that Rocinante's weakness could not resist the power and size of the horse belonging to the Knight of the White Moon. In short, I took a risk, I did what I could, I was toppled, and although I lost my honor, I did not lose, nor can I lose, the virtue of keeping my word. When I was a knight-errant, daring and brave, my acts and my hands brought credit to my deeds, and now, when I am an ordinary gentleman, I shall bring credit to my words by keeping the promise I made. 
Walk on, then, Sancho, my friend, and let us go home to spend the year of our novitiate. And in that seclusion we shall gather new strength to return to the practice of arms which will never be forgotten by me. Senor, responded Sancho, traveling on foot is not so pleasant a thing that it leads or moves me to travel a great distance each day. Let's leave this armor hanging from some tree instead of a hanged man, and if I can sit on my gray with my feet off the ground, we'll travel whatever distances your grace asks for and decides. But if you think I'll walk great distances on foot, you'd better think again. You have spoken well, Sancho, responded Don Quixote. Let my armor be hung as a trophy and beneath it, or all around it, we shall carve on the trees what was written on the trophy of Roland's arms. Let no one move them who cannot test his own against Roland. That all seems like pearls to me, responded Sancho, and if we weren't going to need Rosinante on the road, it would be a good idea to leave him hanging too. Well, replied Don Quixote, I do not want either him or my arms hanged, so that no one can say this is a bad reward for good service. Your grace is right, responded Sancho, because according to wise men you shouldn't blame the pack-saddle for the donkey's mistake. And since your grace is to blame for what happened, you should punish yourself and not turn your anger against your battered and bloody arms, or the gentle Rosinante, or my tender feet, by wanting them to walk more than is fair. They spent all that day in this kind of talk and conversation. And another four as well, and nothing happened to interfere with their journey. But on the fifth day, at the entrance to a village, they discovered a crowd of people at the door of an inn, for it was a holiday, and they were there enjoying themselves. When Don Quixote reached them, a peasant raised his voice, saying, One of these two gentlemen who don't know the parties can decide our wager. I shall, certainly, "'responded Don Quixote, and with complete rectitude, if I can understand it. "'Well, then, senor,' said the peasant, "'the fact is that a man from this village, so fat he weighs eleven arrobas, "'challenged a neighbor of his, who doesn't weigh more than five, to a race. "'The condition was that they had to run a hundred paces carrying equal weight. "'And when the challenger was asked how they would equal the weight, "'he said that the other man who weighs five arrobas "'should add another six arrobas of iron on his back.' and in this way the thin man's eleven arrobas would match the eleven of the fat man. Ah, oh, no, said Sancho, before Don Quixote could respond. Just a few days ago I stopped being a governor, and it's up to the judge, as everybody knows, to decide questions and give an opinion in every case. You are welcome to respond, said Don Quixote. Sancho, my friend, I would not be competent to do so. My judgment is so shaken and confused. With this permission, Sancho said to the peasants, who stood around him with their mouths open, waiting for his verdict, Brothers, what the fat man asks for is not fair and doesn't have a shred of justice in it, because if what they say is true, and the one who's challenged can choose his weapons, it isn't right for him to choose ones that would keep him or stop him from being victorious. And so it's my opinion that the fat challenger should prune, trim, peel away, scrape, pare off, and lose six arrobas of his flesh, here and there on his body, wherever he thinks best. And in this way, when he weighs five arrobas, he'll match and be equal to the five of his adversary. 
and so they'll be able to run carrying equal weight. By my soul, said a peasant who had listened to Sancho's decision, this gentleman has spoken like a saint and given a verdict like a canon. But I'll bet the fat man won't want to lose an ounce of his flesh, let alone six arobas of it. The best thing would be if they don't run, responded another, because then the thin man won't be worn out carrying that weight, and the fat man won't have to lose any. Let half the wager be in wine, and let's take these gentlemen to the tavern that has the good wine and let it be on me, and wear a cape when it rains. Senores, responded Don Quixote, I thank you, but I cannot stop even for a moment. Melancholy thoughts and events make me seem discourteous and oblige me to travel quickly. And so, spurring Rocinante, he rode forward, leaving them all amazed at having seen and observed both his strange figure and the intelligence of his servant, for that is what they judged Sancho to be. And another of the peasants said, If the servant is this intelligent, what must the master be like? I'll bet if they went to study in Salamanca, in the wink of an eye they'd be magistrates. Everything's deceit except studying and more studying, and having favor and good luck. When a man least expects it, he finds himself with a staff in his hand or a mitre on his head. Master and servant spent that night in the middle of a field, in the open air. The next day, as they continued their journey, they saw a man walking toward them with saddle-bags around his neck and a pike or javelin in his hand, looking exactly like a courier on foot. As he approached Don Quixote, he quickened his pace until he was almost running, and he came up to him and embraced his right thigh, which was as high as he could reach, and said with displays of great joy, Oh, Señor Don Quixote of La Mancha, what happiness will fill the heart of my lord the duke when he knows that your grace is returning to his castle, for he is still there with my lady the duchess. I do not recognize you, friend, responded Don Quixote, and I shall not know who you are if you do not tell me. I, Señor Don Quixote, responded the courier, am Tosilos, the footman of my lord the duke, who refused to fight with your grace over marrying the daughter of Doña Rodriguez. God save me, said Don Quixote. Is it possible that you are the one whom the enchanters, my enemies, transformed into the footman you mention in order to cheat me of the honor of that combat? Be quiet, senor, replied the letter carrier. There was no enchantment at all and no change in anybody's face. I entered the field as much Tosilos the footman as I was when I left it. I wanted to marry without fighting because I liked the girl's looks. But things turned out just the opposite of my intention, because as soon as your grace left our castle, my lord the duke had me lashed a hundred times for going against the orders he had given me before I went into combat. And the upshot is that the girl is a nun, and Doña Rodriguez has gone back to Castilla, and I'm going now to Barcelona to bring a packet of letters to the viceroy that my master has sent him. If your grace would like a drink that's pure, though warm, I have a gourd filled with good wine and a few slices of tronchon cheese that will call upon and wake your thirst if it happens to be sleeping. I'll see this bet, said Sancho, and stake it all on courtesy and let good Tosilos pour in spite of and despite all the enchanters in the Indies. Well, well, said Don Quixote, you are, Sancho, the greatest glutton in the world and the most ignorant man on earth, for you cannot be persuaded that this courier is enchanted, and this Tosilos a counterfeit. 
stay with him and drink your fill, and I shall go ahead slowly and wait for you until you come. The footman laughed, uncovered his gourd, and took his cheese and a small loaf of bread out of a saddlebag, and he and Sancho sat on the green grass, and in companionable peace quickly dispatched and finished the contents of the saddlebags with so much spirit that they licked the packet of letters simply because it smelled of cheese. Tosilos said to Sancho, There's no doubt that your master, Sancho, my friend, must be a madman. What do you mean, must be? responded Sancho. He doesn't owe anybody anything. He pays for everything and more when madness is the coin. I see it clearly, and I tell him so clearly, but what good does it do? Especially now, when he's really hopeless, because he was defeated by the Knight of the White Moon. Tosilos begged him to tell him what had happened, but Sancho responded that it was discourteous to allow his master to wait for him. And on another day, if they were to meet, there would be time for that. And having stood, after he had shaken his tunic and brushed the crumbs from his beard, he walked behind the grey. He said goodbye, left Tosilos, and overtook his master, who was waiting for him in the shade of a tree. Chapter 67 Regarding the decision Don Quixote made to become a shepherd and lead a pastoral life until the year of his promise had passed, along with other incidents that are truly pleasurable and entertaining. If many thoughts had troubled Don Quixote before his fall, many more troubled him after he was toppled. As has been said, he was in the shade of the tree, and there, like flies swarming around honey, thoughts came to him and stung him. Some had to do with the disenchantment of Dulcinea, and others with the life he would have to live in his forced retirement. Then Sancho arrived and praised the liberality of the footman Tosilos. "'Is it possible?' said Don Quixote. "'Oh, Sancho, that you still think he is the real footman. "'It seems you have forgotten that you saw Dulcinea changed and transformed into a peasant, "'and the Knight of the Mirrors into Bachelor Carrasco, "'the work in both cases of the enchanters who pursue me. "'But tell me now, did you ask the man you call Tosilos "'what God has done with Altisidora? "'Did she weep over my absence?' Or has she already placed in the hands of oblivion the amorous thoughts that so troubled her in my presence? Mine were not the kind, responded Sancho, that would let me ask about nonsense. My God, Senor, is your grace interested now in asking about other people's thoughts, especially amorous ones? Look, Sancho, said Don Quixote, there is a great difference between the actions one takes because of love and those taken because of gratitude. A knight may well be unenamoured, but strictly speaking he can never be ungrateful. Altisidora, it seems, loved me dearly. She gave me the three nightcaps, which you know about. She wept at my departure. She cursed me. She reviled me. She complained, despite all modesty, publicly. All of these were signs that she adored me, for the anger of lovers often ends in curses. I had no hopes to offer her or treasures to present to her, because all of mine I have given to Dulcinea, and the treasures of knights errant are, like those of goblins, apparent and false, and I can give her only the innocent memories I have of her. 
As for those I have of Dulcinea, you offend her with your slackness in administering the lashes and in punishing that flesh, may I see it devoured by wolves, which you would rather preserve for the worms than use for the relief of that poor lady. Senor, responded Sancho, if you want to know the truth, I'm not convinced that lashing my backside has anything to do with disenchanting the enchanted. Because it would be like saying, if you have a headache, put some ointment on your knees. I'd swear, at least, that in all the histories about knight-errantry that your grace has read, you've never seen a disenchantment by flogging. But whether that's true or not, I'll give myself the lashes when I feel like it, and it's a convenient time for me to punish myself. May it be God's will, responded Don Quixote, and may the heavens grant you the grace to realize the obligation you have to help my lady, who is yours as well, since you are my servant. They were conversing as they continued on their way, until they reached the same place and spot where they had been trampled by the bulls. Don Quixote recognized it and said to Sancho, This is the meadow where we encountered the beautiful shepherdesses and gallant shepherds who wanted to restore and imitate pastoral Arcadia here, a thought as original as it is intelligent. And, like them, if you think it is a good idea, I should like, O oh Sancho, for us to become shepherds. At least for the time I must be retired. I shall buy some sheep and all the other things needed for the pastoral exercise, and my name will be Shepherd Quixotis and yours, Shepherd Pancino, and we shall roam the mountains, the woods and the meadows, singing here, lamenting there, drinking the liquid crystal of the fountains, or the limpid streams, or the rushing rivers. With a copious hand, the oaks will give us their sweetest fruit, the hard cork trees, their trunks as seats, the willows, their shade, the roses, their fragrance, the broad meadows, carpets of a thousand shades and colors, the clear, pure air, our breath, the moon and stars, our light in spite of night's darkness. Pleasure will give us our songs, joy our weeping, Apollo our verses, love our conceits, and with these we shall make ourselves eternal and famous, not only in the present, but in times to come. "'My God,' said Sancho, "'that sort of life squares so well with me it even corners. "'Besides, as soon as bachelor Sanson Carrasco "'and the barber master Nicolas see it, "'they'll want to lead that life and become shepherds along with us. "'God willing, the priest will decide to join the fold, too. "'He's so good-natured and fond of enjoying himself.' "'You have spoken very well,' said Don Quixote. And bachelor Sanson Carrasco, if he enters the pastoral fraternity, as he undoubtedly will, can call himself Shepherd Sansonino, or even Shepherd Carrascon. Barber Nicolas can be Miculoso, as old Boscan was called Nemeroso. I do not know what name we could give the priest unless it is one derived from his profession, and we call him Shepherd Curiambro. As for the shepherdesses whose lovers we shall be, we can choose their names as if we were picking pears. And since my lady's fits a shepherdess as well as a princess, 
There is no reason for me to try to find another that would be more suitable. You, Sancho, can call yours whatever you like. I don't plan, responded Sancho, to give her any name but Teresona, which will suit her plumpness and the name she already has, which is Teresa. Besides, I'll celebrate her in my verses and reveal my chaste desires, for I don't plan to go looking for trouble in other men's houses. It won't be good for the priest to have a shepherdess, because he ought to set a good example. But if the bachelor wants to have one, his soul is his own business. God save me, said Don Quixote. What a life we shall lead, Sancho, my friend. What flagellettes will reach our ears, what Samoran pipes, what timbrels, what tambourines, and what rebecks. Well, and what if in the midst of all this music, Albogues should resound? Then we would have all the pastoral instruments. What are Albogues? asked Sancho. I've never heard of them or seen them in my life. Albogues, responded Don Quixote, are something like brass candlesticks, and when you hit one with the other along the empty or hollow side, it makes a sound that is not unpleasant, though it may not be very beautiful or harmonious, and it goes well with the rustic nature of pipes and timbrels. This word, albogues, is Moorish, as are all those in our Castilian tongue that begin with al, for example, Almoasa, Almorsar, Alfombra, Alguacil, Alusema, Almacen, Alcancia, and other similar words. Our language has only three that are Moorish and end in the letter I, and they are Borsegi, Sakisami, and Maravedi. Aleli and Alfaki, as much for their initial Al as for the final I, are known to be Arabic. I have told you this in passing because it came to mind when I happened to mention Albogues. One thing that will help us a great deal to achieve perfection in this endeavor is that I am something of a poet, as you know. And bachelor Sanson Carrasco is even better. I say nothing about the priest, but I would wager that he has a touch of the poet and Master Nicolas as well. I have no doubt about that because all barbers, or most of them, are guitarists and rhymers. I shall complain of absence. You will praise yourself as a steadfast lover, Shepherd Carascon will lament being scorned, and the priest, Coriambro, whatever he chooses. And so things will go so well that no one could ask for more. To which Sancho responded, I am, senor, so unfortunate that I fear the day will never come when I can join this exercise. Oh, how polished I'll keep the spoons when I'm a shepherd. What soft bread, what cream, what garlands, what pastoral odds and ends that if they don't earn me fame as a wise man can't help but earn me fame as a clever one. Sanchica, my daughter, will bring food up to our flocks. But wait, she's a good-looking girl, and there are shepherds more wicked than simple, and I wouldn't want her to go for wool and come back shorn. Love and unchaste desires are as likely in the countryside as in the cities, in shepherds' huts as in royal palaces. And if you take away the cause, you take away the sin. And if your eyes don't see, your heart doesn't break, and a jump over the thicket is better than the prayers of good men. No more proverbs, Sancho, said Don Quixote, for any one of those you have said is enough to explain your thoughts. I have often advised you not to be so prodigal in your proverbs and to restrain yourself from saying them, but it seems that is like preaching in the desert, and my mother punishes me and I deceive her. It seems to me, 
responded Sancho, that your grace is like the pot calling the kettle black. You reprove me for saying proverbs, and your grace strings them together two at a time. Look, Sancho, responded Don Quixote, I say proverbs when they are appropriate, and when I say them they fit like the rings on your fingers. But you drag them in by the hair and pull them along and do not guide them, and if I remember correctly, I have already told you that proverbs are brief maxims derived from the experience and speculation of wise men in the past, and if the proverb is not to the point, it is not a maxim, it is nonsense. But let us leave this for now. And since night is approaching, let us withdraw some distance from the king's highway and spend the night there, and God alone knows what tomorrow will bring. They withdrew and had a scant late supper, much against the will of Sancho, to whom it seemed that the austerities of knight errantry were common in the forests and mountains, while abundance was displayed in castles and houses, as much in the house of Don Diego de Miranda or Don Antonio Moreno as at the wedding of the wealthy Camacho. But he considered that it could not always be day, and it could not always be night. And so he spent that night sleeping, while his master kept watch. Chapter 68 Regarding the Porcine Adventure that Befell Don Quixote the night was somewhat dark, although the moon was in the sky, but not in a place where she could be seen. Perhaps the Lady Diana had taken a trip to the Antipodes, and left the mountains black and the valleys dark. Don Quixote fulfilled his obligations to nature by sleeping his first sleep, but not giving way to his second, unlike Sancho, who never had a second sleep, because his sleep lasted from nightfall until morning, proving he had a strong constitution and few cares. Those of Don Quixote kept him awake, until he woke Sancho and said, I am astounded, Sancho, at your carefree disposition. I imagine that you are made of marble or hard bronze, and that feeling or sentiment has no place in you. I keep vigil while you sleep, I weep while you sing, I swoon from fasting while you are lazy and sluggish from sheer satiety. It is in the nature of good servants to share the griefs of their masters and to feel what they are feeling, if only for appearance's sake. Look at the serenity of this night and the solitude of this place, inviting us to mingle some wakefulness with our sleep. Get up for the love of God and go a little distance from here, and with good courage and the boldness of gratitude, give yourself three or four hundred of the lashes you owe for the disenchantment of Dulcinea. I plead with you to do this. I do not wish to come to blows with you, as we did last time, because I know you have a heavy hand. After you have flogged yourself, we shall spend what remains of the night singing, I of my absent love and you of your valor, thereby beginning the pastoral life we shall practice in our village. Senor, responded Sancho, I'm not a monk who wakes up in the middle of the night to discipline myself. And I also don't think anybody can feel the extreme pain of a whipping and then start singing music. Your grace should let me sleep and stop pressing me about the lashes, or you'll force me to swear that I'll never even touch a thread of my tunic, let alone my flesh. Oh, unfeeling soul, oh, pitiless squire, 
Oh, undeserved bread and unthinking favors that I have given to you and intend to give to you in the future. Because of me, you found yourself a governor, and because of me, you have hopes of becoming a count or receiving another equivalent title, and the fulfillment of those hopes will take no longer than the time it takes for this year to pass, for post-tenebras spero lucem. I don't understand that, replied Sancho. I only understand that while I'm sleeping I have no fear or hope or trouble or glory. Blessed be whoever invented sleep, the mantle that covers all human thought, the food that satisfies hunger, the water that quenches thirst, the fire that warms the cold, the cold that cools down ardor, and finally, the general coin with which all things are bought, the scale and balance that make the shepherd equal to the king, and the simple man equal to the wise. There is only one defect in sleep, or so I've heard and it is that it resembles death, for there is very little difference between a man who is sleeping and a man who is dead. I have never heard you speak, Sancho, said Don Quixote, as elegantly as now, which leads me to recognize the truth of the proverb that you like to quote. It is not where you were born, but who your friends are now that counts. Ah, confound it, senor, replied Sancho. Now I'm not the one stringing proverbs together. They also drop two by two from your grace's mouth better than they do from mine. But between my proverbs and yours, there must be this difference. Your graces come at the right time while mine are out of place. But in fact, they're all proverbs. They were engaged in this conversation when they heard a deafening sound and a harsh noise that extended through all the valleys. Don Quixote rose to his feet and put his hand to his sword, and Sancho crouched under the grey, pulling the armor down on one side and his donkey's pack-saddle down on the other, trembling from fear as much as Don Quixote trembled from excitement. Gradually the noise grew louder as it came closer to the two fearful men, to one at least. As for the other, his courage is already well known. The fact is, at that early hour, some swineherds were taking more than six hundred pigs to a fair to sell them, and the animals made so much noise, grunting and snorting, that it deafened Don Quixote and Sancho, who could not imagine what the sound could be. The large grunting herd came running in great haste and confusion, and without showing respect for the authority of either Don Quixote or Sancho, they ran over them both destroying Sancho's stockade and knocking down not only Don Quixote but Rosinante for good measure. The herd, the grunting, the speed with which the unclean animals ran past, threw into confusion and to the ground the pack-saddle, the armor, the gray, Rosinante, Sancho, and Don Quixote. Sancho struggled to his feet and asked his master for his sword, saying that he wanted to kill half a dozen of those stout and discourteous pigs, for he had realized what they were. Don Quixote said, Let them be, my friend, for this affront is chastisement for my sin, and heaven's just punishment is that a defeated knight-errant will be devoured by jackals and stung by wasps and trampled by pigs. It must also be heaven's punishment, responded Sancho, that the squires of defeated knights will be bitten by flies, eaten by lice, and attacked by hunger. If we squires were the children of the knights we serve, or close relatives of theirs, 
It wouldn't be surprising if the punishment for their faults reached us all the way to the fourth generation. But what do the panzas have to do with the Quixotes? Well, then, let's get comfortable again and sleep for the rest of the night, and God will send the dawn, and we'll be fine. You sleep, Sancho, responded Don Quixote, for you were born to sleep, but I, born to stand watch, shall give free rein to my thoughts in the time that remains until daylight, and proclaim them in a madrigal I composed in my mind last night, without your knowledge. It seems to me, responded Sancho, that thoughts that move you to write verses can't be very troublesome. Your grace should versify all you want, and I'll sleep all I can. And then, taking all the ground he wished, he curled up and fell fast asleep undisturbed by guarantees or debts or any sorrow. Don Quixote, leaning against the trunk of a beech or a cork tree, for Cide Hamete Benengeli does not specify what kind of tree it was, sang to the sound of his own sighs. Oh, love, when my thoughts turn to the suffering, dread and fierce you bring, I swiftly run toward death hoping to end forever the pain I feel. But when I reach that place, the port in this rough ocean of my torment, I feel such joy and gladness that life grows strong and does not let me pass. And so my living kills me, and death insists and gives me back my life. Mine is a novel state. I go on living and constantly die. Each of these verses was accompanied by many sighs and no few tears, befitting one whose heart was pierced by the pain of defeat and the absence of Dulcinea. Then day arrived, the sun shone its rays into Sancho's eyes. He awoke and stretched, shaking and extending his sluggish limbs. He looked at the destruction wreaked on his provisions by the pigs, and cursed the herd, and even more than that. Finally, the pair resumed their journey, and as the afternoon drew to a close, they saw some ten men on horseback and four or five men on foot coming toward them. Don Quixote's heart beat faster, and Sancho's was alarmed, because the men approaching carried lances and shields, and seemed very warlike. Don Quixote turned to Sancho and said, If I could wield my weapon, Sancho, and the promise I gave had not tied my arms, I would deem this group coming toward us as nothing more than mere child's play, but perhaps it is not what we fear. By then the men on horseback had reached them, and raising their lances, and not saying a word, they surrounded Don Quixote and held their weapons to his back and chest, threatening him with death. One of those on foot brought his finger to his mouth to indicate silence, seized Rosinante's bridle, and led him off the road, the rest of the men on foot, driving Sancho and the grey before them and maintaining the most astonishing silence, followed in the footsteps of those who had taken Don Quixote who tried to ask two or three times where they were taking him or what they wanted, but as soon as he began to move his lips, they were closed by the points of the lances. The same thing happened to Sancho, 
because as soon as he gave signs of wanting to speak, one of the men on foot goaded him with a barb, and the donkey too, as if he wanted to speak as well. Night fell, they hurried their pace, and the two prisoners felt a growing fear, especially when they heard their captors say from time to time, "'Move, Traglodytes! Silence, barbarians! Atone, Anthropophagi! No complaint, Scythians! Don't even open your eyes, murdering Polyphemuses, bloodthirsty lions!' and many other similar names with which they tormented the ears of the wretched master and servant. As Sancho walked, he said to himself, They call us tortoise tykes, barbers and ant puffs, pollies that can be called like piss ants. I don't like these names at all. It's an ill wind blowing on this pile of grain. All this wickedness comes down on us at once like blows on a dog. And may it please God that what this misadventurous adventure threatens goes no further than blows. Don Quixote was dazed, unable to guess, no matter how he tried, the purpose of the insulting names, but certain, at least, that from those words nothing good could be hoped for and a good deal of harm could be feared. And then, almost an hour after nightfall, they arrived at what Don Quixote recognized as the castle of the Duke, where they had been only a short while before. "'God save me,' he said, as soon as he recognized the estate. "'What can this mean? In this house all is courtesy and good manners. But for those who have been defeated, good becomes bad, and bad becomes even worse.' They entered the principal courtyard of the castle, and they saw that it was adorned and decorated in a manner that increased their bewilderment and doubled their fear, as will be seen in the next chapter. Chapter 69 Concerning the strangest and most remarkable event to befall Don Quixote in the entire course of this great history. The horsemen dismounted, and together with those on foot they seized Sancho and Don Quixote, lifted them up, and carried them into the courtyard, around which almost a hundred torches set in sconces were burning. More than five hundred lamps had been placed along the passages in the courtyard, so that despite the night, which proved to be somewhat dark, the lack of daylight went unnoticed. In the middle of the courtyard, a catafalque rose some two varas off the ground, entirely covered by a very large canopy of black velvet. Around it, on its steps, candles of white wax burned in more than a hundred silver candelabras. Displayed on the catafalque was the dead body of a damsel so beautiful that her beauty made death itself beautiful. Her head crowned with a garland of fragrant flowers, lay on a brocade pillow, and her hands, crossed on her bosom, held a branch of yellow triumphant palm. To one side of the courtyard a stage had been erected, and on it were two seats upon which two persons were sitting, and the crowns on their heads and the scepters in their hands indicated that they were kings, either real or feigned. To the side of the stage, on the steps leading up to it, two other seats were placed— and on these the men carrying the prisoners seated Don Quixote and Sancho. They did all this in silence, and signalled to the pair that they should be silent as well. But even without the signals they would have been silent, because the astonishment they felt at what they were seeing had tied their tongues. At that moment 
two distinguished personages mounted the stage, followed by a large retinue. They were recognized immediately by Don Quixote as the Duke and Duchess, his hosts, and they sat in two richly decorated chairs beside the two men who seemed to be kings. Who would not have been astounded at this, especially when Don Quixote realized that the dead body on the catafalque was the beauteous Altisidora? When the Duke and Duchess mounted the stage, Don Quixote and Sancho rose and made deep obeisances, and the Duke and Duchess responded with a slight bow of their heads. Then one of their officials crossed the courtyard, came up to Sancho, and placed on him a garment of black buckram decorated with flames of fire. He removed his cap and put on his head a cone-shaped hat of the sort given to penitents to wear by the holy office, and he said into his ear that if he opened his mouth, they would gag him or take his life. Sancho looked at himself and saw himself in flames, but since they did not burn, he did not care at all about them. He removed the hat, saw that it was decorated with devils, and put it back on, saying to himself, It'll be fine if the flames don't burn me and the devils don't carry me off. Don Quixote looked at him as well, and although fear had stunned his senses, he could not help laughing at Sancho's appearance. At this point the soft, pleasant music of flutes began to be heard, coming apparently from beneath the catafalque, and unconstrained by any human voice, because in that place silence imposed silence on itself, the music sounded gentle and amorous. Then, suddenly, next to the pillow of what was apparently a corpse, there appeared a handsome youth, dressed in Roman fashion, and to the sound of a harp that he played himself, in a soft, clear voice he sang these two stanzas. Until Altisidora turns to life, killed by the cruelty of Don Quixote, until in the enchanting court the ladies begin to wear cloth made of rough goat's hair, until my mistress dresses all her duennas in clothes of heavy flannel and wool serge, I shall sing of her beauty and affliction more sweetly than that famed singer of Thrace. And yet I do not think that this sad duty ends for me on the day that my life ends, but with a cold, dead tongue, a lifeless mouth, I shall lift my voice in sweetest song to you. And when my soul, freed of its mortal shell, is led across the dark infernal sticks, it will celebrate you still, and with that song it will halt the waters of oblivion. No more, said one of the two who seemed to be monarchs. No more, divine singer for it would mean continuing into infinity if you were to represent for us now the death and charms of the peerless Altisidora, who is not dead, as the ignorant world thinks, but alive on the tongues of fame and in the punishment that Sancho Panza, here present, must undergo in order to return her to the light she has lost. And so you, Radamanthus, who judges with me in the gloomy caverns of Dis and who knows everything that has been determined by the inscrutable fates regarding the return of this maiden to life, speak and declare it now so that the good we expect from her return to a new life is no longer delayed. As soon as Minos, judge and companion of Radamanthus, had spoken, Radamanthus rose to his feet and said, Ho! Officials of this house, both high and low, great and small, come one after the other and mark the face of Sancho with twenty-four slaps to the nose, 
and twelve pinches and six pinpricks on his arms and back, for the welfare of Altisidora depends on this ceremony. Hearing this, Sancho Panza broke the silence and said, By God, I'm as likely to become a moor as to let anybody mark my face or slap my nose. By my faith, what does slapping my face have to do with the resurrection of this maiden? The old woman liked the greens so much, they enchant Dulcinea and whip me to disenchant her. Altisidora dies of ills that God sent her, and they'll bring her back by slapping me twenty-four times and riddling my body with pinpricks and pinching my arms black and blue. Try those tricks on your brother-in-law. I'm an old dog, and you don't have to call me twice. You will die, said Radamanthus in a loud voice. Soften your heart, tiger. Humble yourself, proud Nimrod, and suffer and be silent, for you are not being asked to do the impossible, and do not become involved in determining the difficulties of this business. Slapped you must be, riddled with holes you must be, and pinched until you moan. Ho! I say, officials, obey my commands, or by the faith of a virtuous man you will find out why you were born. At that moment, some six duennas appeared, crossing the courtyard in procession, one after the other, four of them wearing spectacles, and all of them holding up their right hands, with four-finger widths of wrist exposed to make their hands seem longer, following the current fashion. As soon as Sancho saw them, he bellowed like a bull, saying, I might let myself be handled by the whole world, but consenting to being touched by duennas, never! Let cats claw my face as they did to my master in this very castle. Let them run my body through with sharpened daggers. Let them tear at the flesh of my arms with red-hot pincers, and I'll bear it all patiently to serve these gentlemen. But I won't consent to duennas touching me, even if the devil carries me off. Don Quixote broke the silence, too, saying to Sancho, Be patient, my friend, and oblige these gentlemen, and give many thanks to heaven for having placed such virtue in your person that through its martyrdom you can disenchant the enchanted and resuscitate the dead. By now the duennas were close to Sancho, and he, more docile and convinced, settled himself in his chair and held up his face and beard to the first duenna, who gave him a very sharp slap, followed by a very deep curtsy. "'Less courtesy and less face-paint, Senora Duena,' said Sancho, "'because, by God, your hands smell of vinagrillo.' Finally, all the duennas marked him, and many other people from the house pinched him, but what he could not endure were the pinpricks, and so he got out of his chair, apparently angry, and grasping one of the burning torches that was near him, he chased after the duennas and all his other tormentors, saying, Away, ministers of hell! I'm not made of bronze! I feel your awful tortures! At this point Altisidora, who must have been tired after spending so much time supine, turned to one side, and when the onlookers saw this, almost all of them cried out in unison, Altisidora is alive! Altisidora lives! Radamanthus ordered Sancho to set aside his wrath, for their intended purpose had been achieved. As soon as Don Quixote saw Altisidora begin to move, he fell to his knees before Sancho, saying, 
Now it is time, friend of my soul rather than my squire, to give yourself some of the lashes to which you are obliged in order to disenchant Dulcinea. Now, I say, is the time when your virtue is ripe and ready to perform the good deed that is expected of you. To which Sancho responded, This seems like one dirty trick on top of another, and not honey on hotcakes. How nice it would be, after pinches, slaps, and pinpricks, to have a few lashes. Why not just take a big stone and tie it around my neck and put me in a well? And I won't mind it too much, since I have to be a laughing stock in order to solve other people's problems. Let me alone! If not, I swear I'll knock down and destroy everything, and I don't care what happens. By this time, Altisidora had sat up on the catafalque, and at the same instant flageolets began to play, accompanied by flutes and the sound of everyone's voices, crying, Long live Altisidora! Altisidora! Long may she live! The Duke and Duchess rose to their feet, as did Kings Minos and Radamanthus, and all of them together, along with Don Quixote and Sancho, went to greet Altisidora and take her down from the catafalque. And she, pretending to be faint, curtsied to the Duke and Duchess and to the kings, and looking at Don Quixote out of the corner of her eye, she said to him, God forgive you, cold-hearted knight, for because of your cruelty... I have been in the next world for more than a thousand years, it seems to me. And you, the most compassionate squire on earth, I thank you for the life I possess. Today, friend Sancho, I promise you will have six chemises of mine to use to make six shirts for yourself. And if some are torn, at least they're all clean. Sancho kissed her hands in gratitude for the present, with his knees on the ground and the cone-shaped hat in his hand. The duke ordered that it be taken from him, and his own cap returned, and they put on his tunic and took off the garment with the flames. Sancho asked the duke to allow him to keep the robe in mitre, for he wanted to take them back to his own village as a keepsake and memento of that incomparable event. The duchess responded that he could, for he already knew what a great friend of his she was. The duke ordered the courtyard cleared, and everyone to withdraw to their own quarters, and Don Quixote and Sancho to be taken to the rooms they already knew from their previous visit. <laughs>